The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit cpiusa.org. All righty. Um, and so uh, we've learned some interesting things this week. Uh, there have been a few things that we have learned, and I just want to fill you all in. So apparently General Milley was the top the top Pentagon dude, right, General Milley, uh, he apparently um, was talking to China and assuring them uh, the USA was not planning to attack China before the elections ended. All right, before the, you know, after the elections, he was assuring them he was not planning to, Trump would not attack China. And... So now there's kind of a right-wing attack on General Milley. Uh, they're referring to him as this woke, as the woke general. They're arguing that he's trying to bring critical race theory and other, you know, more liberal liberal interpretations of events into military training. Um, uh, and they're arguing that he he did speak to the top commander of of the Chinese military, assuring them that uh, there would not be. There would not be an attack um, before Trump left office, uh, despite Trump's erratic behavior. Um, and it appears that there are disagreements within the deep state. Uh, we also find out that CIA Director Gina Haspel, uh, who Donald Trump appointed, Donald Trump's first CIA director was Mike Pompeo. And when Donald Trump moved Mike Pompeo to be Secretary of State, he replaced Mike Pompeo with Director Gina Haspel and CIA Director Gina Haspel. Um, CIA Director Gina Haspel was known as the torture lady. She had a reputation for defending and carrying out George W. Bush's torture policies. Um, and apparently Gina Haspel was also quite worried about Donald Trump and the danger he might attack Iran before the election ended. Uh, very interesting. Now, you have to wonder, you have to wonder, when Donald Trump was facing leaving office, why U.S. intervenes in Syria, when Donald Trump was facing leaving office, why was it that there was a concern that he would attack China or attack Iran before leaving office? Well, it, it's interesting because it fits a pattern. You may not notice this, uh, but Donald Trump killed General Qasem Soleimani right around the time that he was facing impeachment. It was while he was being impeached that he murdered the top Iranian general in a very cowardly way. The leader of the Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps gunned him down in a very cowardly manner while the impeachment debacle was going on, while Donald Trump was being impeached, at a moment when Donald Trump was particularly vulnerable. And then... It appears that as he was getting ready to leave office, he was contemplating attacking Iran and he was contemplating attacking China. And that's when General Milley made this alleged phone call uh, to General, uh, to the leaders of the Chinese military, assuring them uh, that, that, uh, that, that if there were to be some kind of move, they would be informed and that, that Donald Trump would not be able to, to start a war with China before he left office. Now, This raises the question, and it must be asked, you know, why would a president, 
who's in trouble. Why would a president who's in trouble, his first instinct be to start a war, right? And if you're in political trouble, why would you start a war? Why is that what you would do if you're facing political trouble? Donald Trump is facing impeachment. He kills Qasem Soleimani. Donald Trump is facing leaving office. He's contemplating attacking Iran, attacking, attacking China. But then that points towards something else. Points towards something else, which is you'll recall that presidents who are in trouble often start wars. Uh, you'll remember that when was it that Bill Clinton bombed former Yugoslavia and launched his campaign against Serbia? It was amid the Monica Lewinsky scandal. You remember that? Amid the Monica Lewinsky scandal, Barack Obama, I'm sorry, Bill Clinton attacked former Yugoslavia. Um, you'll recall that. Furthermore, imperialism benefits U.S. workers. Furthermore, you'll recall that until 9-11, uh, George W. Bush's approval rating was quite low. And it wasn't until 9-11. It wasn't until, you know, the attack on Afghanistan, until the invasion of Iraq, that George W. Bush's popularity got back to healthy levels. The first year of Bush's presidency, he was doing pretty miserably. Um, Israel, China. His presidency was doing very miserably. Um, why is this? What, what, is, what is the secret here? It appears, it appears that when our candidates run for office, when the presidents and the people running for the presidency, the presidential candidates are out there campaigning, in a lot of ways, and thank you, thank you, Omar Jarala, in a lot of ways, they're not really auditioning to us. They are auditioning, they are auditioning to the people who really run the United States. And the people who really run the United States are not fully unified. There are many different wealthy folks in the United States, many different millionaires. There's over a million millionaires in the United States, and there are many billionaires. And they don't always agree on everything. And there are different factions among them and different interest groups among them. And when a candidate is running for office, and when a president is facing a political crisis and the possibility of being driven out of office, they don't rush into action to try and please the American people. They rush into action to please the people at the top. And those people at the top are very much tied in with the military-industrial complex. They're tied in with war. And they also are very threatened by the existence of emerging countries around the world that compete with them. Iran is an, a competitor with the oil monopolies in the United States. It's a country that had its Islamic revolution in 1979, seized control of its oil and exports oil on the international markets in competition with Wall Street and big corporations and based in the West and with the big four super majors and Wall Street you know, monopolies. Furthermore, uh, China used to be the sick man of Asia. Now China is the top producer of telecommunications material with Huawei. They are the top producer of steel, and they are a competitor with Western monopolies. And in response to that, it seems that if you want to appeal to the people who really have the power in the United States, the way that you appeal to them, the way that you appeal to them is by 
starting a war, right? Um, and, and that is a way to prove your loyalty to those in power. And if anything, it was Donald Trump's anti-war demagogy uh, that he, he talked about on the campaign trail. Uh, it was Donald Trump's anti-war demagogy that put him on the defensive. Donald Trump was on the defensive throughout his presidency, trying to prove he was not soft on Russia, trying to prove he was not, uh, he was not uh, a non-interventionist. Uh, and that put Donald Trump in a situation where he was constantly trying to prove his loyalty. Now, during the Cold War, it was the Democrats that were in this position. And you'll notice that the two biggest wars of the Cold War, the Korean War and the Vietnam War, were both started by Democrats. Did you know that? It was Democrats who started the two major wars of the Cold War. It was Harry Truman, Roosevelt's vice president, became president, who was being castigated for having, quote unquote, lost China with the House Un-American Activities Committee going after prominent figures in the Democratic Party like Alger Hiss. It was Harry Truman who launched the murderous Korean War and prevented Korea from being reunified, from having continent, or I'm sorry, having, having peninsula-wide elections um, and sent many Americans to their deaths, uh, killed four to five million Koreans with mass bombing and destruction. It was Harry Truman, a Democrat, who did that at a time when the Democrats were being accused of being soft on communism, being accused of having lost China, being accused of being, uh, being a party that was, uh, that was not, uh, not loyal and, and was not willing to go to war enough. What's interesting is the, the Vietnam War started, started with Lyndon Johnson at a time when the Democrats were being accused of being the party that was soft, right? In the 1964 presidential election, you had Barry Goldwater, who was a conservative Republican, and you had Lyndon Johnson. And Lyndon Johnson ran as the peace candidate. That's how he presented himself, right? He got up and he said, I'm not going to send American boys to do what Southeast Asian and Vietnamese boys ought to be doing for themselves. And Lyndon Johnson had the infamous ad where the little girl is counting the daisies on her flower. And then you hear the nuclear countdown, 10, 9, 8. And then you see, you know, a nuclear nuclear explosion. It's vote for Lyndon Johnson or else you're going to have nuclear war. Lyndon Johnson positioned himself as the peace candidate. He was the peace candidate, the lesser evil. And it was Barry Goldwater who was the crazy anti-communist extremist. Uh, and Barry Goldwater had been tied to the McCarthyists. Uh, Barry Goldwater was endorsed by the John Birch Society and by the Ku Klux Klan. And Harry Truman, you had to vote for, I'm sorry, you had to vote for Lyndon Johnson because Lyndon Johnson was, was not a crazy warmonger like, like Barry Goldwater. Uh, however, Lyndon Johnson got elected. And what did he do? Gulf of Tonkin. And he started the Vietnam War. Why? Because the fact that he had run as the peace candidate put him in a defensive position. You have to prove yourself to the military industrial complex. You have to prove your loyalty. Barry Goldwater, if he had gotten in there, he wouldn't have had to prove his loyalty. Uh, you know, he would have been assumed to be a warmonger. But Lyndon Johnson was on the defensive. He was on the defensive. And, um, there you go. It's quite interesting to think about. Now, uh, there's a book that I do recommend 
to people, if you want to understand divisions in the U.S. ruling class, etc., I do recommend the book Market Elections by Vincent Copeland. Vince Copeland, who was a Marxist radical activist in the United States, he wrote a book called Market Elections. And he follows the Rockefeller oil dynasty and their political alignment uh, throughout the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. And the the Rockefeller family, they were essential uh, in, in determining a lot of the political process in our, our country up until up until uh, at least the, the 80s and 90s. They're still deeply influential now, uh, but there are other factions that have gained power, the Silicon Valley fascists, etc. But Market Elections by Vincent Copeland, he talks about how Barry Goldwater, the Republican candidate, was considered, um, considered by the Rockefellers to be too extreme and too far right wing. Uh, that he was tied to some of these more radical dissident right-wing factions, uh, you know, like the John Birch Society, who called the Rockefellers communists, who wanted to outlaw birth control, outlaw abortion, etc. And uh, the Rockefeller Republicans, they were called, were these moderate Republicans. And it was the Rockefeller family and their allies that, that accused Barry Goldwater of being too far to the right, said there was a whiff of fascism at the 1964 Republican convention. And it was really, it was the Rockefellers shifted into the Democratic camp starting in the early 60s. Um, it's very interesting. It's very, very interesting. And that the Rockefeller family, they were considered Republicans, conservatives, but they were shifting leftward and their financial interests were shifting leftward uh, throughout the 1960s in response to the kind of lower levels of capital, in response to the, you know, the the lower level capitalists, uh, you know, these, these lower level capitalists uh, who weren't part of the club. The Rockefeller family, they were the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, they were the Rockefeller think tanks. They actually donated the land on which the United Nations sits, the, the UN. The UN headquarters in Manhattan is on land that was donated by the Rockefeller dynasty, one of the richest families in the history of the United States. Nobody even really knows how much money they have. Um, when, when one of the Rockefellers was being interrogated before Congress, you had a situation where all the best journalists in the United States, uh, you know, were trying to figure out just how much money the Rockefellers had, and they couldn't figure it out. Ferdinand Lundberg, uh, who was a, was a journalist, uh, he, he wrote a very good book called, called Rockefeller Syndrome. And uh, in that book, he talks about how it's impossible to determine how much money the Rockefellers have. It's not all sitting in their own name. Uh, the money is wrapped up in an elaborate network of trusts and et cetera. I mean, they are Chase Bank. They are ExxonMobil. Uh, they are, they're heavily invested in other oil companies like Marathon, and they, they're, they're in oil. Uh, you know, and at this point, you know, Chase Bank, it's J.P. Morgan Chase. It's the Morgan. So General Electric is tied in with, with Chase Bank as well. And if you look at how much money and how much, how much they control, I mean, you're talking about all of the Rockefeller foundations. You're talking about, um, you're talking about a huge, huge layer of, of wealth and money. And it's, it's, it's almost impossible to figure out how wealthy these folks are. Um, and there are other dynasties in the United States, Morgans, the Morgans, right? Um, you know, they talk about, you know, they, they talk about the six families that rule the United States, the six families, right? America's six families that, that dominate. If you want to know the old money Eastern establishment of the United States, we're talking the Rockefellers, the Carnegies, the DuPonts, the Mellons, right? No. Who is it? Rockefellers, Carnegies, DuPonts, Mellons, 
right? And who else? Who else are there? Um, well, that's four, right? And there's two more. There's two more families that generally are associated with the ultra-rich in the United States. DuPonts, Mellons, um, right? And there's there's two other ones. Uh, and, you know, uh, they, are, they are very, 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 very entrenched. People in the chat are saying Rothschilds. Rothschilds are British. They're not in the United States. Um, and the Vanderbilts, the Vanderbilts are generally not included. They are a very, very wealthy family. The Mercers and Soros. Now, the Mercers, no, definitely not the Mercers. And Soros is from Hungary. Uh, and he's, he's, you know, he came to money in his own life and he's Hungarian. So, uh, right. Carnegie's, DuPont's, Morgan's, Mellon's, Rockefeller's, um, right. So Rockefeller's. Carnegie's, DuPont's, Morgan's, Mellon's. That's five. There's one family I'm missing. Which one is it? Which one is it? There's one more family I'm missing there. I'm missing one more family, right? Um, yeah, there's one more family I'm missing. It's not the Vanderbilt's. It's not the Vanderbilt's. It's not the Ford's. Henry Ford, Henry Ford, you have to remember, now he was an auto manufacturer. Uh, he was an auto manufacturer. So there's one more family I'm not thinking of. I'm not thinking of, but but this is, you know, and, you know, the Walton family, for example, right? And they're not on that list. They're not considered one of the old six families of the United States. But the Walton family, they own Walmart, right? Sam Walton. Sam Walton. And yes, that family is is super wealthy and such, but they're not part of this old this old banking banking elite. You know, it's very funny. There's a book that you can read. Um, and it's it's the kind of book... It's the kind of book that you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't think that a communist could take much out of it, um, and and the book is called uh, the book is called um, the book is called The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. But if you read that book, it's about very wealthy people in New York City during the nineteen twenties, and if you read that book, you get kind of an understanding. You get kind of an understanding of of who these who these elites were, right? So you know the book the book takes place in the Hamptons and Long Island, West Egg and East Egg, um, and the rich are always driving through Queens, which they refer to as the Valley of Ashes because it's industrial. They're always driving through Queens to Manhattan, which is their playground where they party. Um, optimistic left resurgence. Genuine. I'm writing it down. The Gettys. They're a good one, but I don't think they're on the list, right? That's a that's a good one. Um, all right. Patriotic workplace, not country. Um, okay. Books on the history of China. That's a very good question, Io. Books on history of China. But yeah, I mean, when you talk about the old money and the Wall Street elites and, and all of that, I mean, if you read if you read The Great Gatsby, right, they drive through the Valley of Ashes, which is Queens, to party in Manhattan. Um, and uh, the villain, uh, the villain character in The Great Gatsby, uh, who's supposed to be a very, very wealthy man who has, has a relationship with Mr. Chase of Chase Bank, 
Um, he's a eugenicist and he's a racist uh, and he's always, he's, he's always going on and on about, about other races and the need to beat them down and, and protecting the Nordic race, which was a very popular viewpoint among the ultra rich during the 1920s. Um, you know, I wrote a review, I wrote a review of the film of the great Gatsby, the movie version of it that was made by Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, and it wasn't really a review, and it's, it's a shame it's not on the internet anymore. A lot of my old articles are up on the internet, but some of them have been removed and over the years. But I wrote, I wrote, um, I wrote a review of um, will the Quad Become Asian NATO? Quad Asian NATO. I wrote a review of, of the film, but I, I, made, I used the film to make three points. Um, and I, I basically, you know, the, the first point I drew from the, the book, Great Gatsby was to point out how in the 1920s among Tom Buchanan, that's his name. Thank you, Nico P. Um, you know, Tom Buchanan, who is the polo player, who's this overly athletic, wealthy man who's kind of the villain. He's dating Daisy, uh, who is Gatsby's long lost love. Uh, Tom Buchanan is always spewing racism and eugenics uh, and such. And that points out how fascism was being widely discussed among the rich during the 1920s. And you would get that from F. Scott Fitzgerald's novel. It comes across very clearly. Tom Buchanan, the villain, who is this wealthy guy, is just constantly walking around spewing racism. And it's not like street bigotry. He's not just talking about this race he doesn't like and all that. It's this kind of, you know, pseudo-academic, pseudo-scientific racism he's spewing. Um, he's a Nazi, basically. Tom Buchanan is a Nazi. Um, and that shows how fascism was a response in the, the rise of the Soviet Union, the rise of the labor movement. The other thing that I pointed out is in the movie version of The Great Gatsby, not in the book, they didn't make this mistake in the book, but in the movie version of The Great Gatsby, uh, they, they do show construction workers, um, aren't the quad already, the Pacific Military Alliance, writing it down. And thank you, Wanderer, quad... military alliance. In, in the movie version of The Great Gatsby, they show, you know, construction workers at various points in the film. And they show, um, you know, they, they, they show working people throughout the film. And it's supposed to be the 1920s. Um, but as you'll notice, uh, they do have black construction workers uh, in New York City in the 1920s. There were no black construction workers in New York City in the 1920s because uh, the AFL and the construction trades in New York City were racist. Uh, the AFL unions did not allow black people to work uh, in construction. Um, and I figured that the reason that when they made the Leonardo DiCaprio version of the movie and they showed African-American, you know, construction workers at construction sites and such, that was because the whole movie is about rich white people. I mean, there, there's there's so many rich white people in the movie. They figured, OK, if we're going to have any non-white people in the movie, we've got to have something. And so they, they you know, they put they put uh, some construction workers into the film. Um, but. At that point in the 1920s, uh, the American Federation of Labor, uh, they did not allow black people in the construction trades. And the construction trades in New York City were the most racist of all of the unions by far, um, you know, and they were dominated by the American Federation of Labor. Um, 
And the Communist Party, uh, you know, they eventually, you know, fought racism within the unions. But, but yeah, uh, you know, even up into the 70s, it was rare to see African-American construction workers in New York City. I mean, the construction trades, the, you know, if you're doing construction in Manhattan, mind you, you're getting paid very good wages to do it, right? I mean, the pay for constru- union construction workers in, in Manhattan and in New York City is is very good. Um, and getting getting a union construction gig in Manhattan is is a very good gig. And so those jobs are very nepotistically handed out. They're very protected. And uh, it really wasn't until the 1970s with the rise of like mandatory affirmative action uh, that, that, that that was that was enabled. You were able to see African-Americans in those trades. Um, and the construction trades, they are a great example of the aristocracy of labor. And this is this is what people don't get. Uh, the aristocracy of labor, right? The aristocracy of labor, um, you know, it refers to the fact that that because of imperialism, there are workers within the homeland uh, of imperialism who are, are able to have a higher, higher living standard and see their wages go up. They see their wages go up um, because of where they're operating. They're operating in the center of the empire. They're able to get the bosses to pay them more than they would generally pay, right? Construction workers in Manhattan, in the capital of capitalism, the center of the global empire, are in a position where if they go on strike and they unionize, they could get the employers to pay them very high wages. Um, you know, construction workers in Alabama are not in that situation. Construction workers in South America are certainly not in that situation. Construction workers in, in, you know, in Central Asia are certainly not in that position. But if you're a construction worker in New York City, uh, you know, in the heart of the empire, especially in, during the post-World War II economic expansion, but even in the 20s, right, you can, you can force the employer to give you higher pay. However, Right, that leads to a situation where the construction workers are, are they win that higher pay, uh, and then they're being told, "Oh, well, this is because we're skilled workers, right? We're skilled. They need us. We're construction workers, but we don't think that workers in a factory should get decent pay like we get. We don't think that workers, uh, you know, that domestic workers should get this higher pay. We're a skilled trade. We're craftsmen, right? We we had to have an apprenticeship and and all of that. And uh, actually, um, you know, we're more like the bosses. We're more like our employers than we are like these non-English speaking workers who work in the factories than we are like African-Americans or, or Latino folks, you know, and, and it changes their consciousness. And during the 1970s, uh, it actually in May of 1970, there was a very famous incident called the Hard Hat Riots. Are folks ever familiar with the Hard Hat Riots? And what that was, was the construction workers unions, uh, the construction workers unions went out to beat up anti-war protesters. Um, and it was they were supporters of Richard Nixon. They were called hard hats. They were right-wing construction workers. They were part of the construction trades. And they were conservatives. They weren't Democrats. They were supporters of Richard Nixon. They were labor union organized. They were union workers. But they were Republicans. They were conservatives. And they got the day off work. Their bosses gave them the day off work. And they patrolled uh, lower Manhattan uh, and Greenwich Village beating up random people for having long hair, beating up anti-war protesters. It was the hard hat riots. Well, why did these construction workers uh, who were working class, who were, you know, why did they feel a need to do this? Um, Because they were labor aristocracy, right? They got paid so much higher 
than workers in other parts of the world, and even than other workers in New York City. And they identified with imperialism. It changed their consciousness. And they felt that the hippies and the black liberation movement was a threat to their privilege. Uh, and as a result, uh, they were mobilized against the anti-war movement. And what's interesting is uh, Gus Hall, the leader of the Communist Party of the United States, wrote a pamphlet directed at those construction workers. And it was called Hard Hats and Hard Facts. You can probably Google it and find it. Hard Hats and Hard Facts. Um, and uh, the Workers' World Party, they wrote, they wrote a, a, an article about the construction workers doing it, and they showed a picture of the construction workers, and they had a banner that said like "America, love it or leave it," you know, whatever. But in, they they changed, they covered up what the banner actually said, and they wrote on it, "I love my boss." Because that's basically what they were doing. By beating up the anti-war protesters, the, the labor aristocracy was saying, I love my boss. Then that they did. They felt like, hey, I've got better pay than other people. I should defend, I should defend my position, right? And that's the aristocracy of labor. But I gotta tell you, one of the best moments at Occupy Wall Street, I've told this story before, and you know, we, we are coming out of the 10-year anniversary of Occupy Wall Street. One of the best moments at Occupy Wall Street, best stories, I guess. It wasn't a moment. It was it was a couple things. But I remember, you know, there was a night that, that Bloomberg announced he was planning to raid the park. So Occupy Wall Street started September 17th, 2011, was the day it started. The first General Assembly was August 2nd, 2011. That was the first meeting with David Graeber and, and folks, which I was part of. And there were meetings in Tompkins Square Park, et cetera. But the actual occupation started September 17th. September 17th. And, uh, you know, they kept going for a little while. And it was around mid-October that they announced that they were planning to raid the park, uh, that Bloomberg was going to clear the park that night. And um, so an email went out uh, and the whole, every liberal Democratic Party group in the country, ACLU, Planned Parenthood, they all sent this email out, go and defend Occupy Wall Street. Bloomberg is going to raid the park tonight. And I, I went there with some other activists, um, and, and we had, we'd all seen this. The emails started going out around, around 11, 12, midnight or whatever. So, so you know, it's, it's late at night, but we're saying we're going to stay in the park. You know, we're going to get to the park and be there, um, be there as people, you know, come in. So I remember I got off the train. I got off the train around midnight uh, down in the Wall Street area, and I was carrying signs with me. And the signs said, abolish capitalism, fight for socialism. They were, you know, revolutionary Marxist signs. And it's late at night, and I got out of my, uh, out of, out of, I got out of the subway, and I'm carrying these signs with me. And in a cab, there's some rich Wall Street guy who's probably just finally leaving the bar, right? He's finished his nightly drinking, he's on his way home. And he, he rolls down the window of the cab and he shouts at me, get a job, you dirty hippie, get a job, loser, you know, whatever. He shouts that at me. So I'm just standing there. I figure whatever. I mean, people shout at you. You know, I'm used to this kind of thing. Um, but then behind me, right, at the, at, at the subway station I was at, there was construction going on. There were a bunch of guys in hard hats working a late night shift on, on construction. Um, and they immediately started shouting back at the guy in the cab, shut up, you 1% mother effer, you know, you you rich ass, you know, you do a day's work, you piece of crap. All these construction workers are shouting back at the, the rich guy in the cab. Um, I thought that was pretty cool. 
so, you know, I, I went to Occupy Wall Street and we're there. And, you know, gradually as it's getting toward morning, more and more people are piling in. By six in the morning, Occupy Wall Street was was full of people. I mean, it was just packed full of people, right? Because that was the night that there was a full mobilization. Um, uh, Trotskyism versus liberalism. You know, there was a full mobilization to defend the park. So, you know, but we had plenty of time. We're just kind of chilling there as the park is filling up. Finally, as the sun comes up, there's thousands of people there. And of course, they don't clear the park that night. It was kind of, that was kind of the, the, the orgasm of Occupy Wall Street, right? That was the climax of Occupy Wall Street, you could say. They did clear the park, uh, the you know, a month later. But, but yeah, but, you know, that was the night where the, everyone came out and defended Occupy Wall Street. They didn't, they didn't clear the park. But, you know, that night I'm talking, I'm talking to some of these old activists, baby boomer communists. And I'm telling them how the construction workers were defending me. And they started crying and tears came down their faces because they could remember the hard hat riots. Uh, they could remember the hard hat riots. They remembered when construction workers used to beat up anti-war protesters and beat up leftists. Um, however, uh, that was not the feeling. And in fact, that day at the rally at Occupy Wall Street, when all the people were there to defend Occupy Wall Street, there were a number of construction workers in their hard hats. And there was a guy who was a friend of mine who did video and he went around and he interviewed construction workers who were there to support Occupy Wall Street. And construction worker after construction worker with their hard hat on told them that they supported Occupy Wall Street, that the big corporations are ripping people off, that they're they're breaking their unions, not paying union wages, um, and that they supported the kids at Occupy Wall Street. And what does that show? That shows that when circumstances change, when circumstances change, consciousness also changes, right? And if you go, the construction workers' unions in New York City, now there's still, there's still problems, no doubt. But... Uh, but they're not hostile to Occupy Wall Street, I'll tell you that much. Um, they're not supporting the wars. They don't have rallies to support the wars anymore, I'll tell you that much. You know, there's not going to be a hard hat riot anytime soon among New York City construction workers. Now, a lot of them might have voted for Trump for this reason or other, but but there won't be a, a and, and conditions change. Conditions change. Circumstances change. And that's what a lot of folks don't seem to get is that, you know, that that situations are constantly changing. That's what I'm always talking about on here. A does not equal A. A does not equal A. And tomorrow is not the same uh, as today and yesterday. And the world is constantly in a state of change. And when the situation changes, the tactics must also change. If the circumstances or the situation changes in 24 hours, the tactics must also change in 24 hours. Uh, and this is Marxism. This is basic Marxism. And this is what I'm, I'm, thank you very much for the super chat, PLN. This is what I'm espousing in We Are City Builders, right? That, that's the whole point. That's the whole point. And we are city builders. I'm trying to get people to understand this and that, that if we are going to bring socialism to the United States, um, things have got to change. Look, look, some of these third worldists, right? They're always talking about aristocracy of labor and you listen to them talk and some of the things that they say, some of the things they say really make me do a double take. I listen to some of them talk. For example, one of the talking points that one of these third worldists used is his his proof, his proof, he says, there will never be a revolution in the United States, that U.S. workers benefit from imperialism, blah, blah, blah. Is he says, if you were to go to average workers in the United States and give them a gun and say, go kill the bourgeoisie, they wouldn't do it. Well, that's true for any country that is in a non-revolutionary situation. 
Most people don't want to kill. Most people don't want violence. Most people don't want to murder. So this idea, and does he think it's different in the developing world? Does he think that in the developing world, oh, you could just, people, average people off the street, you could just say, here's a gun, go kill the bourgeoisie? No, right? That's, that's just not reality, right? That's not the reality, right? And that, again, that's just such a very naive way of thinking about these things. Most human beings overwhelmingly don't want violence. And in a non-revolutionary situation, most people don't even really want to overthrow capitalism. Right? If you had gone to the average Russian in 1901 and given them a gun and said, go kill the bourgeoisie, they wouldn't have taken it. You'd have gone to the average Russian in 1904 and given them a gun and said, go kill the bourgeoisie, they wouldn't have taken it. And in fact, the 1905 revolution in Russia only happened uh, because of a horrendous massacre, because the ability of the people to peacefully march for bread had been taken away, right? This this rally called by Father Gapan, who was this priest, this peaceful march for bread had been violently attacked by the czar's, uh, the czar's police. They had gunned down peaceful marchers begging for bread, and there were strikes all across the country in response to it, and soldiers, there was, there was an uprising within the military. But even then, even then, it wasn't just average people being handed guns and being told to kill the bourgeoisie. So when this person goes around and says, oh, well, you, you know, it's clear because look, if you give an average person in the United States a gun, they don't want to kill the bourgeoisie. People don't want violence. People don't want to kill in any country in a non-communist situation. Another argument I heard from one of these third worldists is they said, oh, why is there so much anti-communism in the United States? It's because it's in the economic interests of the people here. Do you think there is not vicious anti-communism in the developing world? Do you think there is not vicious anti-communism in Chile? Look at the Pinochet regime. You know, uh, you know, my wife is from Guatemala. Do you think there wasn't vicious anti-communism in Guatemala in the 70s and 80s, even up into today? You know, there's a lot of people in Guatemala who admire Rios Montt, uh, the military dictator who, who committed genocide against the indigenous people. Uh, you know, I mean, you think there's not vicious anti-communism uh, all across the world? Go to South Korea. In South Korea, it is against the law to advocate communism. Why is there no official communist party in South Korea? Because if it is, you go to prison under their national security laws. Any country that's not in a revolutionary situation is not going to have average people saying, give me a gun to kill the bourgeoisie. And in most countries in the world, there is a large amount of vicious anti-communism, right? So that argument is completely ridiculous. What they do have in the developing world that we don't have uh, is that they tend to have mass communist organizations, right? There tend to be, in places like India, in places like Vietnam, in places like uh, like South Africa, you have mass communist organizations among the broad masses of people that are centers of the community, that feed people, that take care of people, that organize and mobilize uh, for, the, you know, for the community and the community's interests. That's what you have. We don't have that here. Um, top three book suggestions. Uh, we don't have that here. We don't have such things here. Um, and as a result of that, as a result of that, there is a lack of communist consciousness among the population. And there is also a feeling among people who are attracted to communism that that is not what they need to do, that they can just sit on the internet and feel like they're right and be content to be right, and that they can formulate their politics in a very hostile and, and unattractive way. So I think people, people really need to rethink all, all this stuff, right? I think there are millions of Americans who are angry right now. There are millions of Americans who 
are ready, uh, ready to hear a genuine socialist message, but we've got to give it to them. We got to get out of the movement. We got to get to the masses. Out of the movement to the masses. Out of the movement to the masses. Dare to struggle. Dare to win. That's what we got to do.